Please be seated. <clears throat> so we are continuing in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and we are continuing in the Tenth Commandment. This will be the last sermon in the Tenth Commandment, the fourth and last. So let's confess the three questions in unison that are related to this commandment. Question 79, which is the Tenth Commandment? The Tenth Commandment is, Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. Question 80, what is required in the Tenth Commandment? The Tenth Commandment requireth full contentment with our own condition with our right and charitable frame of spirit toward our neighbor and all that is his. Question 81, what is forbidden in the 10th commandment? The 10th commandment forbiddeth all discontentment with our own estate, envying or grieving at the good of our neighbor and all inordinate motions and affections to anything that is his. So for the last few weeks, we have been looking at the different faces of covetousness. We began by recognizing that the word covet in Hebrew means desire, and it, can, it could be a good desire or a bad desire. We usually use it, the word covet in English is usually negative, although it can be used the other way. Obviously, the commandment prohibits you from desiring what God has given to your neighbor, your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's house, your neighbor's donkey. The clear implication here is that we should submit even our very desires to God. And that's what we talked about, that he sees our hearts and he disapproves of sinful desires. You don't have to steal something to violate God's law. You can simply covet something that he has not given you. In the second sermon on the 10th commandment, we saw that our desires cause us to behave in certain ways. And here we saw that our desires can cause us to behave, become sinful or bitter toward our neighbor when he or she does not meet our expectations, even our reasonable expectations that we have of our neighbor can wrongly be held onto by us so that it produces quarreling and contention. You remember I used the illustration of the husband and wife that both have a desire for, uh, to be comforted by their spouse, and they love their spouse, and they had a really hard day, both of them the same day. And when they get together, they're both looking for you know, the other one to kind of look after them and pamper them a bit, and they end up in conflict unless one of them is willing to let go of a desire that's not in a wrong desire to want your spouse to be an encouragement and comfort to you, but a desire held on to when you need to be reaching out to them becomes a covetous, a kind of desire that you shouldn't have, a sinful desire. Um, last week, in our third sermon on covetousness, we saw how Jesus warns us about laying up treasures on earth instead of in heaven. Now, we, I emphasize that it's not wrong to, for us to have riches in this world, like godly Job did, for example, 
or an important position like the centurion did in Acts chapter 10. Both of them were men that were highly approved by God. God said that he approved of them. But it's rather to say that our treasures and our positions are to be possessed for the glory of God. And that has implications. It means that if we are expected to cheat in order to get a promotion, then we will let the promotion go because we're seeking God's kingdom first. If we're seeking blessing in the world first, the kingdom of this world, then we'll take the promotion and we'll forget about what God said about about that uh, compromise that's required. It means that we will not be enslaved to our work or to our possessions such that we will have no time or interest in prayer, in reading God's word, in praising God, in keeping the Lord's day, all of those things, or in tithing. We say, oh, I can't do that because it will impoverish me too much, or I've got to have this time. We're not serving the things of the earth. We're serving God. And we're seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness. That's how we're to live. Now, I I, I certainly um, cannot go into all that we have looked at, but that's a brief review. And now with our last sermon on the 10th commandment, I want to look at one of the deep roots of covetousness, which at the same time is a fruit of covetousness. And that is discontentment. That's something that the catechism addresses particularly, that we should not be discontent. We are discontent when we didn't get what we wanted, where we should be rejoicing and giving thanks to God for what he has given us and for what he has called us to do. Instead, we're bitter and unhappy with both of those things. Why would you call me to do this? Why didn't you give me this or that? It can indeed be very difficult for us because There are some very hard things that that happen to us and hard things that we're called to do. And we're going to look at some of that very frankly in the message today. But like Jesus, you have to accept the cup that God has given you, the bitter cup or or the sweet cup. You have to accept the cup and say, I am here for you, Father, and you have been so kind and gracious to me. Not my will, but your will be done. The scripture reading that I have chosen today speaks about this very thing. It's from Philippians chapter 1, verse 27 through chapter 2, verse 18. So please listen as I read this to you, beginning again in Philippians 1, 27. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, of their ruin, but to you of salvation and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, 
being of one accord, of one mind. And of course, he's talking about the mind of Christ, isn't he? Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling." For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and disputing that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering, On the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. So may the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his holy and faithful word. This is a very rich passage, of course, because it talks about our Lord Jesus Christ. It's kind of interesting how Paul refers to the glory of Christ, but his purpose in doing it, what he's reason he's talking about the glory of Christ and really a passage that we learn tons of of theological truths about Jesus and his suffering the reason he's talking about it is because he wants to provide an example for how we should conduct ourselves in the world so it has a very a very practical purpose like that to help us in serving God so to start off here let me show you the overall flow of this passage that it's very much a passage that speaks against our covetous desires. Please turn to Philippians so you can follow, if you're not already there, so you can follow the flow of this passage in your Bible. As Paul moves to the end of the first chapter, where we began reading, he starts admonishing them to live in a way that is worthy of Christ, particularly in their suffering. That's why he talks about Christ's suffering later, you see. Verse 27, he gives them a very tall order. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. We have been redeemed by the shedding of the blood of the Son of God who became flesh. And as those redeemed, we are to live, it says here, in a way that's worthy of what has been done for us. That's a very high calling, isn't it? He gives them here two particular ways that they should live worthy of the gospel. 
First, they should live worthy of the gospel in the way they treat each other. They have a common cause, and that common cause is to promote Christ and his kingdom in the world. To honor the Lord by living together in love and by serving together. But this is not always so easy. They were redeemed, but still sinners. And you know that. You know that about yourself. You know that about each other. It was hard for them many times to get along. You ever have that problem? (laughs) Getting along with other saints, even the ones that you live with. They had to put up with a lot from each other if they were going to be unified. Because you see, we have to live in peace. We have, to, we have a way to deal with our sins and offenses. We ask forgiveness to one another. We repent. But, you know, they keep coming up. There's many things we even overlook. And we need to, we, we have to live. If we're going to be unified, we have to deal with those things and not let bitterness and, and strife come into our lives so that we start acting in a hostile way to each other. No, we need to have the unity that, that beautifies the gospel. So the first way that they were to live worthy of the gospel was by getting along with each other in service to Christ. Secondly, he tells them to live worthy of the gospel by suffering for Christ at the hands of their enemies without fear. Okay, so in their suffering, to suffer without fear and to bear that suffering for the glory of God. It's inevitable that those who are truly living for Christ will suffer. Why is that? Because the gospel is a very disturbing thing to fallen human beings. It tells us all that we are so corrupt and so sinful that we need to be redeemed by the sacrifice of God's Son. That message no matter how you present it, is going to be very disturbing to anyone who hears it until they accept it. When they accept it, it's not disturbing anymore. But until they accept it, it's a message that they do not like at all. It's offensive to them. It's a wonderful message to see the great love of God and of Christ, but it's offensive to us that God was that offended by our sin, that His son had to go to the cross on account. We might be fine with the cross being a good example of someone suffering (coughs) for a a good cause. But when we realize that that cause was actually the cross itself bearing our punishment, then, well, why should I be punished like that? Why should God be displeased with me? And we're offended by the cross. The Jews were like that. We're, We're righteous, holy people. Why should we have this? to have a Messiah that dies on the cross. He should lead us to be the leaders in the world so that we can dominate in the world because we're God's people. We like to think better of ourselves, you see, than what the gospel tells us about ourselves. (laughs) We really would. This means that if you're serving Christ, then people are going to be offended with you because of what you stand for, the gospel. You have accepted the very message that they're trying to avoid trying to deny that there's no acceptance with God apart from Christ. Paul was in prison because of it. Many others have gone to prison. Paul died because of it. Many others have died because of it in the world. The bottom line is serving Christ involves suffering. 
there's a lot that you have to put up with then, both from Christians who maybe by and large, you know, well-meaning or whatever, but we have to bear with one another in those, those afflictions, living in unity, and from unbelievers who, who hate the very gospel that we, and the Lord that we live for. Because this is so, Paul says, Philippians 1, 29 and 30, for to you, this is what you've been given, for to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, you know, to trust in him for salvation, but also to suffer for his sake by, because of your association with him. That's part of what's been given to you. Not only to believe, but also to suffer for his sake. Having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. Granted to you to suffer. Does that sound kind of strange? It doesn't sound like a grant to me. I think of a grant as being, you know, like when you get money to do a project or something like that. A grant to suffer? Yeah, it is a privilege to suffer for the sake of his kingdom. You remember in the early church when they suffered and they they gave thanks that they were counted worthy to suffer for his sake. It's a privilege to be part of his kingdom that is breaking into the world that is so sinful and contrary that it creates waves of opposition and bitterness and hatred. We're part of that kingdom that, that those that are being delivered, we come out of the wilderness leaning on our beloved. There is a conflict like the conflict that Christ had because, and, and that Paul had. Of course, nobody wants to suffer. There would be something wrong with us if we wanted to suffer just because we took a delight in suffering. That, oh, oh I, I really look forward to suffering. I, I love suffering. You know, that's not, that's not the right, <laughs> right way to be. But we are willing to suffer, and you see, even glad to do so if it means that we're part of God's kingdom that is breaking into this world that hates that kingdom because it is so different from this fallen sinful world. You have to let go of certainly your sinful desires in coming to Christ, but you also have to let go of your desire to avoid suffering because if you're following him, you're going to have some suffering. As long as you're in this world, you will suffer. Remember, covetousness is clinging to your own desires, even if those desires, like the desire not to suffer, we all, have that. We all look forward to the resurrection. We all look forward to paradise, of course. We don't like suffering itself, but if you hold on to the desire not to suffer so that you compromise and don't serve God's kingdom, it becomes a covetous desire that you shouldn't have, that you should let go of, because you're clearly called to do something else, you see. This is a hard calling. It's a conflict. It tears us apart. It tore Christ apart. He was overwhelmed as he faced the burden of the cross. Paul says, if it's any help to you, Christ had to suffer a bit too. You know, if you, if, if you need some consolation here, Christ had to suffer like, like you're suffering. He had to do things that he did not want to do in themselves, for the sake of others. That's what Paul speaks about in Philippians 2. Down in verse 5 to 8, he tells us that Christ, even though he was the Son of God, did not consider himself too good to suffer for sinners. He actually looked at us as more important than himself when he did that. He is the Son of God, and he is fully equal 
to God the Father. And yet, when called to put aside that honor that rightly belonged to him in order that he might bring God's kingdom into this sinful, ruined, fallen world, he gladly did it. As it says in verse 7, he made himself of no reputation and took on the form of a servant. He who created us came to be one of us, a subject before God, and to be treated with all the dishonor that would come from one who is bringing a kingdom into a world that did not want God and did not like God's kingdom, did not want God's kingdom. You know how he was mocked and how he was spit upon and how he was crucified. And as it says here, he obeyed the Father's call all the way to the extent of death, all the way to the point of death, even, it emphasizes, the death of the cross. Why is the death of the cross even the death of the cross? The cross was where he was cursed by the Father because of our sins. That's what made the cross so very distasteful in itself. The Father actually called him to take responsibility for all the sin of his whole entire kingdom so that all the shame fell upon him. All of the rejection from the Father fell upon him. He said, I will be the king of these sinful people, knowing full well what that entailed. He said, I will take responsibility for all the wrong that is in them and for all the wrong that they have done. Let me bear the blame so that I can deliver them. What Adam should have done instead of eating the fruit also Let me bear the blame for what my wife has done. Of course, Jesus did not want the shame itself, but he did want it in order that he might fulfill the Father's will and take away our sin from us. In verse 9 through 11, we're told that God fully accepted what Jesus did for us. After the work that he was given to do was complete, We're told that the Father highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. He gave him the name Lord, the highest of names. This is quoted from the Old Testament, and the word Lord there is the word Yahweh, the highest of all names. And he, as mediator, was given the name, the title Yahweh. He made him Lord and Savior, we're told. Now, of course, he was already Lord of all in his eternal divine being and nature. But when he came here as mediator and he fulfilled that work as mediator, as mediator, he became Lord and Savior. And now he calls us into his kingdom by the working of the Holy Spirit. And when he does, we bow before him as Lord. That's the confession, the root confession of Christians. Jesus Christ is Lord. When we do that, we enter into this righteous kingdom that is breaking into this sinful world, and that leads to suffering for the gospel for as long as we're in this world. Our sins are forgiven because of what Jesus did, but because we belong to him now, we not only have to forsake our sin, which is hard 
for us to do, but we also have to accept the fact that it has been granted to us not only to believe, but also to suffer for his sake. We have to give up not only then our sinful desires, but also our desire for peace and safety and ease and comfort and all those other things if when they uh, are, are, are something that we bear in our following of Christ. Suffering associated with the gospel, we need to gladly bear in this world. It's hard to do. There's no denying it. So in Philippians 2, 1 through 4, Paul tells you where to find encouragement in your suffering by looking at Christ's example. If he regarded you so highly that he went from heaven's glorious heights to the shameful lowly cross, then shouldn't you regard your brothers and sisters that he is calling into his kingdom as more important than your own comfort? Are you going to are you going to uh, go for that comfort if it means that you're not going to be able to bear witness to those who are coming into his kingdom? Should it bother you if you must suffer a bit when Christ suffered so much more, when he didn't even deserve to suffer, and you do deserve to suffer way more than you'll ever have to suffer? Look at Philippians two, three, and four. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind. Let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Be willing then to suffer the wrongs that others do to you, both believers as well as unbelievers. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. This is the standard for the kingdom of Christ, to love others as he has loved them. It stings, doesn't it? It is humbling because we know that we come short. Do you see here how much you need to change? Well, in verse 12, Paul gives us encouragement. He says, obey this with fear and trembling before God. You're called to willingly suffer wrongs, injustice, and deprivation, It is going to be ugly to be involved as part of the kingdom. Until we get to glory, the cross will be a daily matter. You die daily, crucified for Christ's sake. You'll come short. You you are not like Christ. Fear and tremble before God, then he's saying. That's an encouragement to us. Realizing you come short, you fear and tremble before God. Be deeply ashamed of your selfishness and your unwillingness to suffer for him. Why is that an encouragement? We, we can do that because there's hope, because there's forgiveness that God will change us. Do not despair. Also, because when you confess your sins, you do it with a view that God is going to deliver you from those sins. If there was no salvation, if there was no forgiveness, if there was no deliverance, you wouldn't want to confess your sin. But when you confess them, it's like saying, I have cancer, doctor, will you help me? You go, it, 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 it's, it's a, a thing of encouragement because there's hope. So in verse 12 and 13, what does it say? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and do of his good pleasure. Jesus is atoned for your sins, so you are forgiven. But now, in addition to that, God is at work in you, not only to help you desire to do what is pleasing to him, even when it's hard and difficult. 
but also to actually do what pleases him, both to will and to do. You are learning to say, not my will, but your will be done. Even Jesus had to learn obedience this way. You remember what we're told in Hebrews, that he learned obedience through the things that he suffered. You're learning both to desire the will of God and to do the will of God by the powerful grace of God in the pressures and temptations that you have in this world where you're called to suffer. In verse 14, Paul takes a blow at the resistance that is in us the resistance that we still have toward the will of God. Because we struggle with this, don't we? The resistance seen, how? In complaining and disputing. It's a blow that he takes to our covetous desires as they are manifested. He says, do all things without complaining and disputing. He knows that that's a problem. So he says, do all things without complaining and disputing. Complaining and disputing are two ways that we put up resistance to the call of God when it conflicts with our own desires. Let's look at each of these. Complaining is what you do when you don't like what God has given you. Complaining is what comes out of your heart when what God has done for you, or not done to you, maybe we should say, or not done for you, conflicts with what you want him to do, with what you want. We struggle with difficult people, with unreasonable people, even with unbelievers, I mean, even with other believers who are sinners like we are, there are two ways to respond. Okay, so what happens? We've been talking about that it's difficult sometimes to bear with wrongs that are done to us. There's two things that you can do, two ways to respond. You can complain. You can say, this isn't fair. This isn't right. And it may be true that whatever they've done to you is not fair and not right. But you can complain about it and get bitter and sullen about it. And you can turn crabby because you don't like it. You can do that. Or you can have the mind of Christ. And you can say, I am called to honor God in this situation. I'm called to live in a way that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. You can turn the matter over to God. Seek to do good to the one who has wronged you to overcome evil with good. To pray for him and to see restoration. Think of what Christ suffered for you and how unworthy you are, and it will make it easy for you to bear with others. Shall you require a higher standard of your neighbor than he requires of you? Stop your complaining, even in your heart. Let your hard heart melt under the love of Christ and what he has done for you. Of course, it is not just difficult people that we complain about. We also complain about difficult circumstances in life. Why do I have to be sick all the time when others are well? Why can't I get a better job? Why can't I be more successful? Why can't I just have peace and quiet? Why am I, more pop- why am I not more popular or more attractive than I am? Why am I not more wealthy than I am? Whatever it is, you don't like what God has given you? Well, did you forget that he gave you a kingdom of righteousness that is forever and ever, that he gave you full forgiveness of sins? How can you not like the whole package? We talked about that. What would you give in exchange for the kingdom of righteousness for Christ and your relationship with him? 
There's nothing that would be even close to to compare with that. So if he's called you in this world to some hardship and he's given you a kingdom of everlasting righteousness, do you have any real reason to murmur and complain when you really get down to it? When Israel is being brought through the wilderness to the promised land, did they have reason really to complain? Israel certainly did complain in the wilderness. And I'm quite sure that we would have been there complaining as well if we'd been there. Even more than they did, I think, because we're so spoiled. We've got so much. How would you like to be in a wilderness with a bunch of ordinary people who have no water? You've seen people when they don't have enough toilet paper or something, you know, at Costco? I mean, what, what, what are we going to do if we didn't have water? Imagine having to eat manna every day and nothing else. That's what they were called to do as those who are bringing God's kingdom into the world, to bear these things. And then there is the second thing that we do when God's will clashes with our own desires when we don't like what he has commanded us to do. You see, see he, gives, he puts us in those situations like Israel is in to purge us, right? To, to purge it out of us. To, to, because we're, we're people who, who failed at that point. We said, my desire, not yours, to God. We need to turn that around and say, your desire, not mine. I'm here for you. Okay, so then there's a second thing we do when God's will clashes with our own desires when we don't like what he has commanded us to do, we dispute with them about it. The word translated dispute in the New King James could be also translated argue. Once again, Israel in the wilderness comes to mind. When God told them to go into the land, the, the, the promised land with all the fortified cities and everything, they didn't just complain about it. They disputed with God about it. They argued about it. He, they, they said, this is a bad idea. You know, we're going to be ruined and destroyed if we do what you told us to do. We're not going to do that. We don't want to be ruined and destroyed. They refused to go at the clear command of God. They argued and disputed. You can't ask me to do that. That's not even reasonable. Jesus was so very different, and we should be very glad that he was. If you want to talk about something unreasonable, I mean, you're told that, okay, you've got to go, these, these people that, that hate you and that hate me, I, I want to redeem them. And so you go and you bear the punishment for them so that they can be saved. Yeah, this is, you know, that's something to argue. What? Why, why should I do that for these people that hate me and that hate you and that, that don't even want to be redeemed at this point? Why should I do that? That would be easy to say, wasn't it? Jesus didn't want to go to the cross at all as a thing in itself. And he prayed that he would not have to do it if it were possible. If it is possible, let this cup pass from me. But he did not argue or dispute and say, well, that's not fair. That's not reasonable. I'm not going to do that. How can you ask me to do that? He did not come up with reasons that his work might fail either or that might not accomplish its purpose. What good would that do? No, he fully obeyed the Father, even to the point of death on the cross. You know how easy it is for us to go into disputing and arguing against things that God has told us to do. Children, you know what it's like if your parents ask you to do something and you don't really want to do it, and they're calling you away from something that you really do want to do. You start arguing, or they tell you that you can't have something that you really wanted to get, that they don't think it's a good idea for you to have it. 
uh, you, you start to complain and argue. Well, why not? What's wrong with that? It's the easiest thing in the world to start disputing and arguing with them. And when you do that, you're, displeasing, you're disputing with God. Because God told you, honor your father and mother. So you're saying, this father and mother that you gave me, they're asking for something ridiculous. I can't go along with that. This is a stupid, foolish thing. And, you know, your mothers also have a challenge. It's hard for them a lot of times to submit to their husbands. And they're called to do that. And to, even if their husband is disobedient, is doing stuff that's wrong, then they're supposed to win him without a word instead of arguing and disputing. They're not supposed to argue and dispute about whatever he's doing. They can be, that can be very hard to do. It's easy for a woman to think, this is really a bad plan. <laughs> this is, I, I, I think God should have done this a different way. He should have appointed something different for me than to win my husband without a word, with a, 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 a meek and quiet spirit that's resting in what God is doing here. Because I don't like what he's doing, and I want to argue and complain about this. And we preachers. We can hear about some neat new way to do worship that's bringing people into the church by the, by the droves. And uh, we can take issue with God's commandment that we're not to add or take away from the things he's appointed to do in worship. Hey, people like this. This is popular. Look at all the success. That, why can't we do this? I don't agree with what God says. I'm not going to obey what God says. I'm going to do what I think is best because what God says or what people think that he's saying, I think there must be misunderstanding the scriptures here. We start to modify and change and argue and debate about it. You see, now we could go on and on with examples of situations in which either we either complain or dispute with God. You know about this, but here Paul is especially talking about complaining and disputing with him about the suffering that we experience because of our association with Christ. We're looking at the book of Hebrews soon. And, you know, a lot of the Hebrews were thinking about turning back because, hey, you know, we, we, we've been suffering all this time ever since we started following Christ from our own countrymen. Maybe we could go back and do some of the Jewish ritual stuff again and, and kind of get ease that a little bit, get out of that a little bit. And he tells them, no, Christ is better. We have a hard time obeying the call to have the mind of Christ. Two, as verse five says, let the mind of Christ be in us so that we're willing to let go of what we want for the sake of God's kingdom. Paul tells what we ought to do instead of complaining and arguing. This is very important. First, he tells us that we should hold, hold on, as it were, to the word of life. Don't start complaining like Adam and Eve did because they couldn't eat from the tree, but hold on to the word of life of life that God has spoken. What was it in their case? The word of life. He said, if you eat from this tree, you'll die. But if you don't, then you'll live from this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That was the word of life that he had given them. And they didn't hold to the word of life, did they? Oh, we're not, we, we can't. How, why should we not eat from that? They started arguing. What, what's wrong with that? They, they complained and then they ate. And for you, the word of life is the gospel. It's the word of promise that Jesus came into the world to establish God's kingdom as our representative. He had to live a righteous life in a world that hates righteousness. He had to die for the sins of people that he was to bring into his kingdom. He has done all that and God has accepted it. 
So now he says, come to me and believe and you will have eternal life. We need to cling to that word, to that. That is the word of life that we cling to. But the gospel's offensive. Why does the church modify the gospel all the time? Because the gospel is offensive to people. And we say, this isn't a good idea for me to profess this gospel. Let me change the gospel a little bit. Let me modify it a little bit. Even though coming to him means you have to submit to his will, even though it means you have to suffer because of people in this world that oppose the gospel, you need to cling to the word of life. Paul tells the Philippians to hold on to the word of the gospel so that his efforts to bring to the, go- the gospel to them won't be wasted. It's an interesting thing. He says this kind of thing from time to time to the people. We actually saw it in 2 Corinthians 11 today. So that he can rejoice, he says, that his sufferings that he was involved in in bringing the gospel to them. You know, everywhere that Paul went, he suffered when he brought the message of the gospel because people hated it so much. He could have modified it a little bit, just a little bit. And he could have eased that suffering substantially. But instead, he kept suffering to bring the gospel to them. He said, I don't want that to be wasted by you deciding that this gospel needs to be modified a little bit and you're going to go away and modify it, change it so that you won't have to suffer anymore. No, he says uh, Jesus really, really did come to, he had to, he had to go to the cross for us. Paul knows that you're going to stand out in the world if you stop complaining and disputing with God about what he puts you through and commands you to do. You're going to stand out, as he says in verse 15, as the children of God who are blameless and harmless. You're there for God and you are there for others because you are living for God's kingdom. And he says that you will be light in the world in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation that does not do the will of God. So keep holding on to the word of life instead of complaining about and arguing about the trouble that the word of life brings to you through, through your, because of your association with Christ. Then you will be light. But if you forsake the word of life, if you forsake the gospel, if you modify it, then you, you won't be causing that offense anymore and you won't be light anymore. You'll be darkness like the world. Paul puts himself forward as an example of someone who had set aside his own selfish desires for the sake of the gospel. As I said, I can't believe the way Paul does. I mean, he goes to a city and he has suffering for the gospel. And he goes to the next city and does the very same thing again. And he has suffering again. And he goes to the next one and he does it again. In verse 17, he speaks of his life as a life that is poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith. I did this to bring the gospel to you. I could have just gone and meditated in a desert somewhere and not talked to anybody and been thankful for what God did in sending Jesus or whatever and never had to bear all of this. But I did this on the sacrifice and service of your faith. Just as Jesus emptied himself for the sake of of God's kingdom, that he might establish it for us, so Paul emptied himself, poured out his life, no longer living for his own selfish desires, but for the kingdom of God. The gospel is not going to be popular. It's not going to make you popular, but it will make you light. Instead of complaining and disputing about it, Paul was glad to do it. At the end of verse 17, he says, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Just think of it. Here were these people 
who are now in the kingdom of God because of Paul's sacrifice and service. They were now in the kingdom of God who had been in the kingdom of darkness because Paul had poured out his life for the sake of the gospel. Not that Paul saved them, but he poured out his life in order to bring the gospel to them in a hostile, a world that was hostile to the gospel. And he was very glad for that. Why was he glad? Because they'd been brought from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. They'd been given eternal life, immortal souls brought to live forever in Christ rather than in, in condemnation. Just as Paul calls us to have the mind of Christ so that we put God's kingdom above our own desires, just like he had done, so he calls us to be glad and rejoice to do that, just like Christ did and just like Paul did. Okay, without complaining and disputing. In verse 18, he says, For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. Let us rejoice together that we can suffer for Christ's kingdom for the sake of the gospel, that we be a part of a kingdom of God as it breaks into the world and suffers violent opposition, hostile engagement, as it calls for death to self, so that we can live to Christ. Yes, you are dying to self. That's what we do when we come to Christ. But remember, you're dying not so that you can be entombed in a grave, but so that you can live forever. And remember, you're dying so that you might spread life to others. You are a co-laborer with Christ for the gospel. And that means that even if you, if you did not have any sin, if that was so you would still have to die to your own desires for the sake of the gospel, like Jesus did. If you had absolutely no sin at all, you wouldn't have to die to your sinful desires, but you would still have to bear the cross in this world because you would have to go and minister to people and bear suffering in doing that. You would have to bear that, that hardship. Jesus learned that kind of obedience, of going contrary to what would be desirable to him to not have that suffering in order to bring the gospel to, and for him to even, of course, bear the cross for us. He had to learn to say, not my will, but yours be done because he was here to bring God's kingdom to a fallen world. But of course, you are a sinner. And that means that you not only have to die to the desires that are not necessarily sinful for his kingdom, it also means that you have to put off your sinful desires as well. But just think of what you're getting. You're getting life through Jesus Christ. Eternal life in his kingdom with, his in, with an inheritance that is forever. You're getting life for you and for others that Jesus came to give his life for forever. Isn't that a good reason to be glad and rejoice in pouring out yourself for Christ and his kingdom? Let me tell you something. Start being glad and rejoicing that you can pour out your life for the kingdom of Christ and covetousness will disappear. Gratitude replaces covetousness. Gratitude and covetousness cannot coexist. How can you be full of covetousness when you're rejoicing that you're in Christ serving him in the gospel? How can you be full of 
complaining and disputing when you are glad and rejoicing that you can pour out your life for others. If you say, this has been granted to me to do this, to suffer for his sake, and you're glad to do that, then you're not going to be complaining about it, are you? The one erases the other. And this is what, by God's grace, it is God who works in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And that's what his good pleasure is. So we need to learn to, that we may have the mind of Christ and that we may go forth by his grace following his example. And also an example of a fellow sinner, the example of the Apostle Paul who followed Christ in that way. Okay, let, please stand and let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercy and grace to us in the gospel. And Father, truly you have given us something that is worth more than anything else, than all that we could ever have in this world. And we pray that we would be glad to suffer, that this gospel might be furthered, that it might go on to be a blessing to others, that we might honor Christ who suffered for us, that we might honor you and show our love to you. We know that there are brothers and sisters right now that are suffering great hardship for the gospel. They maybe are tortured, maybe dying, but yet their love for you propels them onward and their love for you grows and increases and they count it a joy to suffer for your sake. They are privileged to be able to do so. Father, it is easy to talk about this. It is hard to do this. But when we do it, then it's not so hard because you give grace to your servants that they may be able to do this for you. So may we learn now every day to set aside those selfish, whining, complaining attitudes, those covetous desires, and to be clothed with the gospel, to go forth with joy and rejoicing that we're here for you, Lord, and that even losses are things that we can glory in even things that we don't like because we bear them for you. Father, we pray that you would help us in these things. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. The blessing of the Lord our God to that end. Now may the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Amen.